linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, I hope you didn't put too much faith in what I said in the last podcast about getting a second podcast out that week. As you may be able to tell from my nasal-sounding voice, this flu or cold or whatever it is still hasn't loosened its grip on me, so uh, I apologize for not getting that done, but my energy level is still somewhat low. However, uh, here we are, back again together in the salon, so... uh, Things can't be all bad. What I'm about to play for you now is the plyologue that Alicia Danforth led at the 2007 Burning Man Festival. And even though the 2007 burn was the first time we tried this format, I'm here to say that Alicia did a brilliant job of bringing our idea into reality. Her topic was building a model for sustainable psychedelic therapy. And as you will hear... She was uh, very effective in drawing the audience into the mix, resulting in a wide range of ideas about how to build such a model. I'll have more to say about Alicia after we listen to her plyologue, but as you listen, uh, particularly those of you who are thinking about a career in psychedelic research, you might want to keep in mind that Alicia has moved into this rarefied arena in just a few short years and with little specific training in the field. What sets her apart from many others who are also thinking about doing this kind of work is that Alicia was uh, passionate about this cause, and so she just kept volunteering and doing what she could to help until the position she now holds opened up for her. And by the way, uh, Alicia conducted this plyologue in a very dusty yurt, uh, windy and dusty yurt, I might mention, where her audience had to use breathing masks uh, just to keep the playa dust out of their lungs. And that is a degree of difficulty that not many speakers ever have to overcome. So uh, let's join her now. Because I am a new face and um, I'm only an aspiring expert at this point, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about my background and how I came to be doing this work. I think it does speak to our theme of building a sustainable psychedelic research and up on the kind of lofty visionary level, um, I saw what I thought was a change that needed to take place in the world and realized the only way we're going to get there is to put it into action. I had been a television and news producer for about nine years, and then I segued into a very, very corporate environment. I worked for a major biomanufacturing company. Uh, They now use the term human therapeutics. And uh, they're not so sustainable at the moment. I'm not going to mention any names, but they've been in the press a lot lately. So I've sort of had a first-hand glimpse at the big corporate model that isn't really working. Um, But uh, after, after leading a very mainstream corporate kind of existence for some time, I went out after work one day with friends for a drink at a bar, and they were talking about ecstasy. And my knee-jerk reaction was, oh, you guys don't think you should be messing with this. Uh, I don't know. It sounds dangerous. And true to my nature, I got a book. And it was Julie Holland's book, uh, Ecstasy, A Complete Guide. 
And um, don't worry, I'm not going to read from notes the whole time. But I brought a copy of the quote that marked the turning point that launched the beginning of my work as a psychedelic researcher and activist. And uh, there's a section in the book where she includes some excerpts from emails that she received from people with chronic mental health problems. She identifies it in the book as schizophrenia. People have different feelings about that term, but this was from a young man who wrote to her after an MDMA experience, and this is what he said. I felt as if my mental problems had washed away all of my paranoia, all of my reservations about people, all of the pent-up anger and frustration, the bitterness toward my family, all of it had been flushed out with a single dose. I felt like a real person. Every time I read it, I almost cry. I felt like a real person. It has given me freedom from a disease that has plagued me for years, and a bit of that freedom continues on even after the drug wears off. I do not think this is a cure for anything, only a new perspective that should be used wisely. And that catalyzed an entirely new me. I finally got that sense of that mission coming from my heart, and I knew I had to try to affect a positive change in the world just based on reading that one testimonial. I had no prior medical background. I had produced some medical television, so I'd worked with doctors and was fairly comfortable in that world, but I was at a loss for how I might participate. So because of my media background, I was sort of a natural impulse to just call Dr. Holland. <laughs> I got in touch with her and said, I, I need to help. I don't know what I can do. She referred me to Rick Doblin, who in turn referred me to Dr. Charles Grobe, the principal investigator at Harbor UCLA for the psilocybin trial, which I'll update you. I'll give you an update in just a, in a minute. I contacted Dr. Grobe, and I would say by chance, but hanging out here long enough, I know that doesn't make very much sense. I had just landed the worst job ever. I was in the most spiritually deprived beige cubicle hive ever, right around the corner from Harbor UCLA. So I contacted Dr. Grobe and talked to him, and he was kind of scratching his head. He gets kind of approached a lot from graduate students and young doctors and trying to think of something I could do. And then it came up in the course of conversation that he had been carrying around the most tattered, yellowed box with 35-millimeter slides that he was using for his presentations when he was speaking to medical students and colleagues. And I realized, this guy needs a PowerPoint presentation. And he was all too happy to have a volunteer. And I mention it only because I'm hoping to spark ideas in other people's minds of use what you've got in some way if you want to get a foothold in advancing psychedelic research. Um, and over the course of several months, I would meet with him when I had some spare time and created a PowerPoint that kind of enhanced his ability to go out and lecture and have a nice presentation. And then uh, Lorenzo did one as well. Um, that was psilocybin-oriented, so we kind of helped Dr. Grove in that capacity. Um, and then uh, some time had gone by, a couple years, and I, I got that phone call that changed my life. How would you like to be the new study coordinator? 
And, you know, I think any time you have a calling, there's that knee-jerk reaction. You're called to do something. You think, you've got the wrong <laughs> person, who <laughs> me? Um, but thanks very much to the expert mentoring I received from Mary C. Uh, she's here in the back of the room. She was an RN who worked on the study for about the first half of the trial, and she took me under her wing and um, showed me the ins and outs of the administration and the onboarding process when new patients, or pardon me, par- participants came on board. And uh, the, the skill set I'd acquired as a TV producer and a project manager were applicable. They were transferable. And the team was extremely gracious about filling in the gaps of my knowledge. Um, and uh, it, it was a good fit. So enough about me. Um, that's how I came to be doing this work. I've been doing it about two years now. So I'm not an expert, but I am one of the few people on the planet right now who's done the FDA-approved, above-board, kind of institutional psychedelic research. Now, uh, I wanted to just get a show of hands. Did anybody hear Dr. Preet Chopra's update on the psilocybin trial here last year? Because I don't want to repeat things too much. Oh, a few of you. Oh, very good. Um, yeah, we were about halfway at that point, maybe six out of 12 participants, and uh, he came in this forum and gave a talk, so I can just sort of bring you up to speed. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail, but um, back, I guess it was in 2004, they finally, the team, um, got approval after years and years of back and forth of jumping through administrative hurdles, got approval from the FDA to work with a mild to moderate dose, an analytical dose of psilocybin as opposed to a knock yourself out, see God dose, uh, 0.2 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And the study is conducted, they were approved for 12 participants, the study is conducted in a special research wing at the county hospital at Harbor UCLA. There's a room that was used uh, as a sleep study room, so it has a nice big heavy double door, one bed in there. my Burning Man experience came in handy, and uh, Mary C. had already done some great legwork helping uh, with the uh, setting part. Uh, we go in before the participants are admitted and hang fabrics and tapestries and bring in flowers and try to create an environment more conducive to having a good journey with psilocybin. Um, during the sessions, we use music, and participants are encouraged to use uh, uh, eye shades to really go within to have an analytical experience. We're a team of three. Uh, Dr. Charles Grobe is the principal investigator. Uh, Dr. Preet Chopra, who spoke here last year, uh, was a fellow at the time at, at Harbor, and he was fantastic, volunteered so much of his time on m- multiple Saturdays to support the work, and uh, I function as the study coordinator, Um, and together the three of us sort of co-facilitate the sessions. Um, Trying to think about the things that people are really interested in, nobody has freaked out. We haven't had anybody run screaming for the room or say, "Ah, I can't wait till this is over, i got to get out of here, or who are you, and whatnot. Um, uh, I would say the, you know, least 
satisfactory outcome where people who didn't have a very strong experience, maybe because of their particular physiology or because of um, other medications that they're working with. Oh, I should mention it is a, <laughs> it is a study working with people who have stage four metastatic cancer. Um, their prognoses vary widely. It can be any kind of cancer as long as they don't have uh, metastases to the brain. An MRI proving that is required as part of inclusion in the study. Um, no history of major psychiatric disorder, no you know, kidney problems, cardiac problems, and so on. So participants are screened. Um, so although they have advanced cancer, they have a measure of health that you know, safety first on this study. It is primarily a safety study. And um, they come in for two sessions for a one-night overnight stay at the hospital. Um, during one session, they'll receive a placebo. During another session, they'll receive the active psilocybin in a capsule form. It is synthesized in a laboratory. We don't use real mushrooms because of the demands of clinical research. Um, it's a very gentle experience so far. The, the most, um, you know, uh, the, the only reports we've had of any discomfort are some very mild queasiness or nausea that was kind of fleeting. So in, in general, people don't tend to get the cramping and nausea that you can get with mushrooms sometimes. It's a very pleasant ride. They uh, receive the medicine in the morning, and they're usually ready to go home at about 5 in the afternoon. And it's double-blind to us. We never know which time it's going to be the placebo or the active drug. But <laughs> when I tell people we use a placebo, they usually kind of laugh and say, <laughs> can't they kind of tell? <laughs> and the answer to that question is, yeah. <laughs> We usually have a, a fairly good idea, but it's pretty irrelevant because the work continues. The work starts well before they take the active drug and continues afterwards. So, um, And as I've mentioned, we've just uh, screened and are ready to onboard our final participant uh, to close this phase of the study and um, begin thinking about the next protocol for the next phase of the trial. And this is where this talk becomes interactive. I've just designated a handful of areas. I don't know how many we'll get through. Um, but areas uh, where, you know, I'll let you in on a little secret. Psychedelics require such new and subjective and creative ways of thinking when you're approaching them in a clinical setting that we spend, if, if, if a participant is very far under, while well, we try to be very present and connected to them, it's a bit of a marathon and sometimes we can't help but start debating amongst ourselves, what do you guys think about this? And what do you think about that? And there are a lot of unanswered questions about how to proceed in a manner that will allow psychedelic research to remain sustainable. We want to avoid roadblocks in terms of the cultural roadblock that occurred in the 60s because of the you know, abuse and misuse out in the general public. We need to adhere to standard methodologies so that institutions like the FDA don't 
stop the process. So some very deep thinking is required, and I thought, who better to ask about some of these ideas? You may tell me something today that I'll jot down a note, and it may <laughs> find its way into the protocol in some form or another. So before I, I start introducing... oh. One other quote I just wanted to read to you. Um, Dr. Chopra, the colleague that I mentioned, uh, this is a quote from his presentation here last year that um, just kind of summarizes what sparked my desire to do this work and keep doing this work. And I have a feeling a lot of people in the room are like-minded. Uh, Dr. Chopra said, I think it's kind of ridiculous to be a scientist and a doctor and not investigate and try to understand how we can use these tools in a Western culture safely. That's my orientation. I, I love being around the visionaries. I love hearing the presentations here about the people who are so lofty and cerebral and inspirational in their thinking. I'm much more pragmatic. I absorb that and then try to figure it out. All right, how do we do it? And that's where I want to enlist your help. So before we begin, does anybody have any questions about the trial in general? Do you need a microphone? Hi. In your um, screening of uh, participants, do you look for people who have previous experience with psychedelics? What a brilliant question. That's one of my bullet points. <laughs> so let's start there. This is an example of the sorts of things that we debate. Is it important to have experienced journeyers? Well, let me back up just one step. There's, in doing clinical research, minimizing variability is always or has been in the past, has been the ideal, very, you know, so that the drug is the only thing that's different, so you can see if it's having any sort of effect or change. And we, for this study, opted to not make that part of an inclusion or exclusion. We have had people who were very experienced back in the day. We've had some deadheads that really, you know, had, you know, had a lot of experience with altered states. We have had entirely naive users who have never had a hallucinogen or psychedelic experience before in their lives. But that is a, a good question going forward to minimize variability or we allow for some flexibility to accommodate the special needs of psychedelics. What Does anybody in the room have an opinion about whether that matters? Should everybody be a naive user who's never done it before or should they have some experience? Both. Yep. Hi. Um, it seems like uh, you should have both so that you could compare. It, like, you know, you should document the differences between the, maybe the people who've done it before and the new people. And just mm -hmm. that's an interesting thing in, in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And to not to discount it, but to, like, work that into the study? Yeah. That seems yeah. 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 I, I happen to agree. And when people say, you know, what instruments are you using to capture that and evaluate that and measure that, that's the new terrain that we're trying to walk wisely and, and carefully. Um, I do think in, in the future it would be an asset to have more sophisticated models for the studies to accommodate comparisons between naive and experienced users within the same study, but clearly delineated. Anybody else have any... I, I, I agree with, with what you just said, that uh, 
Because it's so hard. The exclusionary thing is such a problem anyhow. So if you don't exclude anybody that's whether they have or haven't, but if you do track them separately, I would love to see if you get more positive results of of, of one group or the other, or if it's just the same. That, that's a really curious thing. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating area to explore. Um, Oh, you have a mic? Oh, good. It, it seems to me um, in that uh, I know with this particular study that there's some difficulty in getting uh, people to partake in the study because of the end-stage cancer issue and, and geographic issues. And so uh, I think that it's great that you have uh, anyone can participate. I think that it probably makes this study actually even happening uh, to be easier. But uh, it could be that this is a point that uh, should be stressed with all psychedelic researchers that worked into the data that they collect. They collect data related to the statistics of naive users compared to um, experienced users. And then if all the different studies that anyone is doing does that, there can be a meta-analysis of that data later as a project. So it doesn't have to actually be something that is uh, a goal of the study. It can just be something that each uh, researcher is encouraged to do. Yeah, there's, there's actually a team at NYU right now, I don't know if people are aware, that they're going to replicate our study. And they've called and consulted us on certain points about refining their protocol and so on. And that's something I can pass along and say, hey, if you haven't done so already, you might want to think about starting to collect data comparing naive and experienced users. So anything else on this topic before I throw out the next one? I'm just curious about, um, is the goal of the study for healing the cancer? Or is the goal of the study for contextualizing the experience of the being? Fantastic question. I should have clarified that earlier. This is a psychiatric trial. We're not focusing on curing cancer. It's, it's an anxiety study cancer and anxiety. We're looking, thank you very much, we're, we're looking primarily at anxiety, secondary to that depression and attitudes and perceptions of pain. And I'm very careful in the recruiting process. If I pick up any inklings that someone in desperation is looking for a miracle cure for their cancer, I'll very gently say, I just want to make sure that you understand we're not looking at how this it will influence your cancer, it's to help with anxiety and challenges you're having, you know, existential angst and end-of-life issues and quality of life at the end of life. So thank you. Good question. Anyone else before I move on? Okay, this one, uh, it, it doesn't seem like it should be such a big deal, but it kind of is. It's kind of a fun one to ponder. The use of music. Do you have a set playlist where everybody has the same set of music and they all hear the same thing in the interest of minimizing variability. Um, as they're doing on the MDMA and PTSD study, um, uh, the MAP-sponsored study in North Carolina, or do you customize your playlist to accommodate the unique tastes and needs and attitudes of the participant? Because you lose your variability. I have an opinion, but I'm curious if anybody here has any thoughts. Uh, my, if I think about it, um, if, you're, if your goal is to figure out how to kind of uh, cure or alleviate anxiety and depression and things, um, 
if someone has anxiety about, like if you choose classical music for everybody, and some people have anxiety about classical music perhaps from their upbringing or something, then you're basically countering what you're trying to achieve. So it seems like asking them what, while there is a variability thing, it seems like asking people what kind of music soothes them and makes them comfortable, those types of things would be helpful. Uh, however, there is that, you know, but then we're introducing variability. We're introducing something that already makes them less anxious and then are you is it the music or is it the drug Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and playing devil's advocate sometimes you have to be uh mindful of keeping anybody in their happy floaty place for too long if what they need to do is some cathartic hard work facing some fears um do you have a mic do you need a mic why have music at all (laughs) <laughs> Why have music all? Good question. I've been challenged on this one before by some pretty powerful thinkers. Um, I think part of it is pragmatic. You're in a hospital room with three people in chairs looking at you. You need some place to go. Um, I personally just tend to think of the music as a little boat you can hop on when you're journeying and, and you know ride to wherever you need to go. Um, we, well, I'll I'll let you know at this point, we uh, have not standardized our playlist, but it's interesting to hear the opinions of people who support the view that perhaps we should. And some participants have had cancers, you know, neck and above type issues where they're very sensitive to sound and have requested, can I just have some silence? for the next two hours. And uh, to kind of summarize where we've landed for this particular phase of the trial, this baby step, uh, the skills of a DJ have, have really been brought forward meeting people where they are. The, the general rules that we follow are we tend to avoid English lyrics, especially anything leading, no tearjerkers, Nothing, you know, we're going to really make them cry right now. And, you know, we we try not to be too leading. And we found that organic, you know, percussion-based music, you know, didgeridoo, drums, jungle-inspired type music works well. Um, A lot of, you know, Indian-type music, you may have mantras or something that are... There may be human voices and lyrics, but we tend to avoid anything that would suggest where the participants should head. Um, We've had some funny experiences. Some people said, oh, I I love classical music. I want to hear classical music. And we'll play the classical music, and they'll start laughing. (laughs) Like, oh, oh no, this isn't working at all. I thought this was a great idea. And so the the compromise we've come to, uh, we've got an iPod. And we've got, you know, building a, a large library uh, we have some old standards. I'll share this with you. The uh, soundtrack to the mission tends to work for a lot of people. There are pieces of music with, through trial and error we, we learn. This works fairly well. Um, uh, doing some sort of, you know, these new age tapes you get, you know, chakra meditation. You know, the first track is at the root chakra and had some interesting uh, outcomes I think it, it helped facilitate well. Yeah. I'll, I'll add a little uh, thing that uh, I learned what happened to uh, the, the study Myron Stoloroff did back in the 60s where uh, at Menlo Park 
they ran uh, about 350 people through their program, and it was before LSD became illegal, and it was all LSD, and it was about enhancing creativity. It wasn't healing. But uh, I asked him about the music, and they always used only classical music. They would allow people to bring their music, and they'd, they'd say, well, is it okay if we start off with a little classical, even though you don't like it, and then we'll put yours on after a while? And he says to the best of his memory that there were only one or two people that wanted their music after they kind of got into the session on classical music. Now, I personally have tried classical music a lot of times with sessions, and I'm more of a Pink Floyd guy myself, you know. <laughs> but but uh, they, they only use classical music and they didn't really they kind of allowed the people to bring their own music but they never wound up playing it we recent one of the very recent uh, participants in the study uh when i inquired what kind of music do you like we'd like to have some of that available oh i i pretty much only listen to classical and jazz that's what i like classical and jazz and uh on the second session i had a playlist set up that was more, for lack of a better word, new agey world music, good, really good, juicy journeying music. And this person was a naive user. And uh, we're fairly sure, we don't know, but we're fairly sure the first session was the placebo. And the second session would have been the first time this person had been altered. And, uh, well, with a substance. And um, as the effect of the psilocybin started to come on, there was this little knowing smirk, this little ha, <laughs> and she said, you know where I'm going a little better than I, like, you're right, classical didn't work. We asked her later, like, why were you giggling at that point in the session? She said, you knew better about the music than I did, so, Yeah. Yeah, that's, again, the skills of the DJ tend to come in handy, meeting people where they are and the needs in that session at that moment, being ready to switch it up if you have to. But it's a good point. You know, just... Um, yeah. Well, why music at all? Why not just sound effects, uh, nature sounds, things like that? Yeah. Well, that was the question John just asked, why music at all? Um, yeah, that's that's a, a consideration. Uh, I actually did download a compilation CD called Nature Sounds, and it's crickets chirping in the woods and waterfalls and waves crashing on the beach. We've experimented a bit with that. It works it works fairly well for a six hour session. I don't know how people's stamina would work to listen to. You know, I guess you listen to crickets chirping all night if you're out in the woods, but. Um, Again, I'm, I'm, you guys are bringing up such wonderful points. You're, it's really speaking to this idea of psychedelics require new ways of thinking and new paradigms. If it's going to be sustainable, all these little intricacies need to be worked out it's, or experimented with in a, in a responsible way. Um, y- uh, yes? Since the setting sounds somewhat sterile, what, what do you do like cognitive therapy in the session or is it just like they're there and wherever they want to go you go or how does that yeah I I can give you a sense of kind of the standard model Um, there is pre-work the participants meet with Dr. Grobe there's a psychiatric evaluation and kind of of assess where they are and there is um, uh, intention setting work 
what are you hoping to get from this experience? Uh, one recent participant was rather experienced. Uh, this person was a burner, <laughs> is a burner actually, and um, so I, you know, I've done all sorts of experimenting and so on, and hadn't journeyed with intention before for healing, and uh, his real revelation it was really a uh, different experience for him so uh, some people have journeyed with intention before but regardless if they have or haven't they're encouraged to talk that over with the team and, and um, each session begins with kind of a grounding ceremony we call in the four directions and create a sacred space um, That's part of the unofficial protocol, but I hope someday it makes its way into the official record. But we are mindful of, you know, finding out what people's spiritual orientations are. We've had people who are very devout Buddhists. We've had atheists. And again, that speaks to the, is there a one-size-fits-all solution in a clinical setting for psychedelics? Um, During the session, they're encouraged to go within. It needs to be, you know, sort of analytical. We're not chit-chatting. Uh, however, every hour on, on the hour, I take a blood pressure um, and sort of get a general sense. You know, I don't want to be in people's face asking all the time, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you high yet? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> Nothing would be more annoying, but just kind of the, with gesture. And But uh, I tell you, a lot of times we can tell how people are doing. Uh, one recent participant started out kind of like this at the beginning of the session and right about the time we thought they'd be coming on uh, just spread wide open and you know we try to read those signals where are they are they struggling are they in a content place and I tell them you know I'm going to tap you gently on the shoulder if you want to stay in that deep place just stick out your arm I'll put the cuff on and then drop it. So we talk about signals that they can give uh, so that we're not too intrusive. Around hour five, four or five, um, we check in to make sure they're not too dissociative and kind of ask them, we know, especially the naive users, we know this is kind of an ineffable experience, but can you give us some idea of where you are and check on them? Some people have sat, you know, bolt upright when we least expected it, ripped off the mask and said, I'm getting all sorts of answers to questions and, you know, blah, 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 and they want to talk about it in the moment. Again, we try to meet them where we are, going back to that variability issue. Should there be a rule? No, no talking until the end. Or you're required to check in for five minutes every hour on the hour. Anybody have any thoughts? Something like that would be extremely frustrating and annoying. If you're feeling like you have to get out what you're thinking and you're not allowed to, I get, you know, like I think they really just make things worse for people. And that uh, I was all the time you were talking about this, I was just thinking the the limits of this scientific investigation process are. Um, this is such a. Uh, soft science kind of thing, that applying the hard science rules is kind of going to mess it up, actually. Like, if you're trying to learn about reducing anxiety, it, it's not it's not physics, you know? And so the, the variability has just has to be there. Uh, otherwise, uh, I mean, if you're really trying to 
reduce people's anxiety, not just study one. Ex- you know what I mean? Like, yeah. maybe yeah. it's music and mushrooms together. You know, yeah. It, it, yeah. and that's, you know, and yeah. and ha- being able to talk. I mean, not being able to talk—that's horrible. Don't do that. <laughs> no, no they, they know at any point that we're there. We try yeah. to not bring novels yeah. to read and so on. If you want to communicate with us at any point, mm-hmm. we leave it up to them. Yeah. Like making yeah. somebody feel like a lab rat would not reduce <laughs> anxiety, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's true. Yeah, good point. Anyone else? Yeah. I wanted to respond to that as well. It, for me, psychedelics is, and life in general, my science would be a subjective one, not an objective one. And I just find it so fascinating that you're articulating in between the zones of this purely subjective and the objective view that science holds. I, I don't even know how you can do it. It's a fine line. <laughs> it's walking in those two worlds is a challenge, but I know I care about this so much. I know there's going to be an FDA to deal with for the foreseeable future. Uh, other regulatory agencies, there's an IRB we're responsible to, and, and the, you know data, data safety monitoring reports, you know renewal reviews, all that. Uh, the, those P's and Q's have to be in order. Let me just uh, jump in here for a moment to let you know that uh, at this point in Alicia's plyologue, the windstorm knocked our generator out again. And uh, so for about the next five minutes, you'll be hearing what it sounded like in the yurt without our sound system. But uh, hang in there because we eventually get the generator going again and the sound will greatly improve once it uh, once again comes directly from our microphones. Haven't 
heard about it, it's worth doing a, a Google search and reading about it. Fascinating study with psilocybin. I believe they used healthy controls and at a higher dose, but um, they use Ritalin. And a little bit of minor controversy bubbled up about that. Is that really appropriate to be giving people and so on? But it, they did have a little bit more of a placebo effect. It, it did fool people a bit more. But if you were designing your psychedelic study, what would you use for a placebo? This is something we debate in those off hours when we're just chatting amongst ourselves. Anybody have any thoughts or comments? Yeah. Well, I mean, if your goal is anxiolysis, then you thought about using an active anxiolytic and comparing the two, and then comparing them short term, like, okay, I took this Valium versus the, the, the psilocybin, and right now I feel mellow. But, you know, hopefully what you're looking for is longer term outcomes with the psilocybin that, you know, they can carry forward. I'm making a note. I'd like to address the use of sound in, in the ayahuasca traditions. The sound takes you on the journey for healing, and uh, sound can evoke emotion. So when you have somebody dealing with anxiety, and there could be lots of reasons for anxiety. There, I mean, death is approaching, but they may have issues with their parents or something that happened as a child they want to deal with, and the sound will help to evoke the emotion and the music and help them to free up easily because sound can really tap into emotion. What exactly is the point of the placebo at all? Mercy, you might want to speak to this, but uh, I, I think it's ad adhering to standard methodologies to get the trial approved. Is it, is it more sophisticated than that? Yeah. All those discussions took place before. I know. I, yeah. I think also perhaps uh, you might want to explain that a phase one study is really a safety study to it, prove yeah. that you won't kill a dying person with psilocybin. Exactly. It's primarily a safety study. We're looking at efficacy a bit, but it was such a small sample. It's really taking a baby step to reinitiate the work that was cut short a couple decades ago. So erring on the side of caution really seemed like the best way to go. So, yeah. Um, I just wanted to note really quickly, it would obviously just be, when you were talking about um, collecting statistics on the experiences of naive versus experienced users, and um, I was just reminded of what Matt was saying about um, certain ayahuasca shamans who don't need the drug anymore to experience or don't need the ayahuasca plant anymore even to experience or like enter that space. So I think the placebo effect would be really interesting in like terms of how they affected naive and experienced users, like whether or not like either group, you know, I'm thinking just my opinion here that the experience, I mean, even though it seems counterintuitive that maybe the experienced user might have more an effect of the placebo because they're expecting something, maybe they could like kind of call that up within themselves or, you know, so I just think that would be really interesting, you know. Yeah, do you, do you just want to shout? Or? We feel good. There's a mic right up okay. here. And I, I apologize to you do that for setting this out on the radio at the same time. So. Uh, I just wanted to ask why you have to use a synthesized psilocybin because um, I have experience with about 25 different strains of cubensis, and all of them have different personalities. The Gulf Coast strains are very different from like Mazatepec. The Thai strain is very different from Ecuador. Um, the Hawaiian cyan is very different than all of them. I mean, what, you know, there's some that cause more anxiety 
than others um, that have bitchier personalities, and and there's some that will um, bring on a lot more bliss than others. Did you just read my mind? That's the next note on my list, synthetic versus natural. Uh, It's another debated area that people sort of go back and forth. When I tell people it's a pill and it's synthesized in a laboratory, some people are very opposed to that. Oh, you know, it's, a, it's a natural plant medicine. Why are you messing with what Mother Nature gave us and so on? And uh, there may be others in the room have different opinions. Again, I think it goes back to that same old story. Standardization, safety, minimizing variability. How do you assess the data if someone got a very powerful batch of mushrooms and they got a very mild it's to keep the experience experience as consistent as possible um, one thing that's come up and I, I'm no expert on what I'm talking about here but uh, there's just been some of these little murmurs um, the dosage is based on body weight but some people knowledgeable in the psychopharmacology of all of this think you know that might not be the best measure brain weight may very well be the determinant because the people in our study who are heavy are obviously getting a higher dose than our little petite people. So another challenge. Psychedelics present new ways of thinking. Anybody else have any thoughts on synthetic versus natural? I I mean, I always think of the comment Maria Sabina uh, made. Uh, She had an opportunity to experience synthetic psilocybin, and her assessment was the little people are in there. So, the, and, and the experienced users have said it feels like a psilocybin experience, just maybe a little cleaner, a little less toxic without the nausea and so on, maybe a little less visual. You don't get quite such a light show and, and so on, but uh, similar to the natural substance. So I, I was just talking with Sasha about that this morning because... Uh, he was talking about a conversation he had with uh, Terence McKenna, where McKenna was going on about DMT and it was natural, and Terence was really into the naturals versus the synthetics, and the two of them discussed that from time to time. And uh, he was saying how important DMT was, it's in your body and the plants, and Sasha said, but you know they synthesized it in the 1920s before they discovered it anywhere else. And so, of course, Sasha is into, you know, he believes in the chemistry. The only thing I think, uh, the comment you were making about the wide variety, I think is really important because they have these synergistic effects. It's not just the psilocybin, you know, there's, there's the other synergistic effects. So I guess for a scientific study, if you want control, that's really the only way you get control because you don't really know what other ingredients are tweaking you, but uh, I still kind of go with the natural myself (laughs) over the synthetic, even though there's not supposed to be a difference. I just had the thought that uh, you should use the synthetic because of the control thing, being able to control it, and because you have to, but that once the the data gets out, I think it gets out into the mainstream, that people will be able to do their own thing with the natural. You know, they'll go, oh, it works, okay, well, Hook me up with some mushrooms. <laughs> I think if this was a huge issue, if this is something that you see coming up with the people who want to partake in the study and that it's a big enough issue that it's a concern, uh, it seems totally reasonable to uh, contract, if this is possible, someone to grow mushrooms and extract the natural psilocybin from them. Uh, and that probably could be done cheaper than 
having Dave uh, make up a batch. So that goes to the sustainability theme of the talk. Yeah, going forward, I think it would be most people's preference to start from a more natural place. It, and it's interesting this nature versus you know clinical, technical. A lot of people, when they find out the studies in a hospital, some people have declined to participate because they're like, ah, oh, I, I want to be in the forest. I want to be in the meadow. And, and, you know, I have fantasies of little yurts in a beautiful meadow where we'll be able to do this someday. But time being, we're kind of stuck where we are, just taking baby steps. Did you have a question? Um, I missed the beginning of your discussion, but I... Um I do have a little story that's interesting about synthetic versus natural, and hopefully it hasn't been told before I came in, but some friends of ours who are scientists and entheophiles uh, took some synthetic DMT and went down to the Amazon to um, meet with some elder shaman that they had been working with, some ayahuasqueros. And um, for those of you who don't know... Uh, who don't know, there's uh, one part of the ayahuasca batch is usually the chacruna leaf, which contains DMT. And so our friends wanted to um, invite these medicine men from the Amazon to try the synthetic and smoke it with them. And these guys, of course, are big tobacco smoker shamans, so they're used to the idea of of, uh, taking in medicines that way. And uh, so they agreed, and my friend uh, told me that the um, the shaman took a big hit of the synthetic DMT, and um, he closed his eyes, and about he didn't say anything for ten minutes, and then the first thing he said, he looked at them and he said, "We can get lots more leaf," because they told him it was an extraction from the leaf, even though it was synthetic, because it's like their way of trying to understand. Or they didn't say it was an extraction, but they said it's a very strong form of the leaf. It's like, you know, and and so they, the guy, he was like, we can get a lot more leaf, and he was wanting them to teach them how to make this, you know. So, um, you know, that's just kind of a humorous story. But uh, there's also the similar story of of Hofmann going down to uh, the Amazon or or to no to Maria Sabina and was that already mentioned and she and and she confirmed that these are the same spirits I work with so sorry if I was repetitive how are we doing for time Lorenzo I can keep going all day all night (laughs) since our next speaker isn't here and you do have more time but we'll just keep going until he gets here if you want to or until you get tired so until you get tired okay um, segueing then into another one of these topics. Uh, one thing we debate back and forth is uh, other indications. Um, quite frankly, it was easier to get a study with psychedelics approved with people who have advanced, I, I, I always hate to say terminal, but likely to be terminal at some point. Um, and, you know, that, that idea has always kind of sat with me kind of funny. You know, you're, you don't have long to live anyway. Might as well see what this does to you. I hope we move beyond that model as soon as we can. But, um, you know, we, we debate saying, all right, when we've, when we've proven the safety and assuming we do, um, who else might 
you know, benefit. There is a challenge working it within the current structure that in order to get something prescribed as a, you know, a prescription medication, it needs to be approved for every indication, which means it needs to be studied for every indication. There's, as far as I'm aware, and again, I correct me if I'm wrong, there's no sort of blanket, this is safe, you can do what you want. Um, so it may take some time to hop from indication to indication if a new model and, and some exceptions don't open up. Um, but if you were creating a study using psilocybin or even other psychedelics, what other indications? And I'll just throw out there that um, OCD in psilocybin, has the, uh, Dr. Moreno's trial, has they've looked at that. Um, MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, there are you know, other studies in the work and several that are about to be approved with all, if all goes as planned. But um, what are your thoughts about other indications that should be looked at in a, using the sort of clinical trial model? Um, in terms of working with that population, um, I don't know if I'm qualified to say. It's not something we've discussed. Um, but I think more specific than finding a target population to study or to recruit from, for what indications are we prescribing or, or introducing the substance? What are we trying to heal or address or assuage or whatever? I'm thinking that in prison you'd get a lot of people with post-traumatic stress disorder, pretty serious manifestations of mental illness and things like that that would you know, be a good population to pull from. And, and you can measure the, the you can measure recidivism, right? So it's like kind of long term, but it's not. You wouldn't just look at whether they feel like they're not criminals anymore, but whether they end up getting arrested again within and just follow them. So it, it's it, it it's a measurable. That's measurable. Yeah. Um, I think uh, one, a really good indication to study would be possibly for people with severe anger management um, who tend to have, like, you know, problems. Excuse me, as far as talking as far as prisoners, people who are in there for violent crimes or have, like, um, anger management issues um, just because it's a psychological disease. But, you know, it's like Matt was saying about, um, you know, his mother and colon cancer and, like, carrying anger around, I think, tends to affect you physically a lot as well. So... Hi. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the um, actual the session? What goes on? Is it more like a therapy session? Do you take patients to a specific place and, and have them face specific issues, or do you just let them, you know, bring up whatever comes up? Um, just, just to confirm, did you hear the explanation I gave at the beginning, and you're, you're asking for a little more, a little more detail? Yeah, about what I, we're doing? I came in a little bit late. I don't know how. Uh, I came in at like 4:15, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to repeat okay. too much, but uh, just to sort of recap. Um, participants go through a pre-screening, kind of at different levels. You know, if you meet the basic inclusion-exclusion criteria. Need an MRI of the brain to show no brain metastases. And then there's a sort of pre-first session period where they meet with uh, one or both of the doctors, have some psychological evaluation, um, and they do some intention-setting work. So they usually come in prepped with 
you know, a little pre-work and they're encouraged to, you know, and sometimes it's appropriate to bring in photos of significant people in their lives. Um, one woman brought in a beautiful tanka that we hung on the wall. Some people brought in original artwork, again, allowing for some leeway in terms of variability. Um, we always dress the room. In fact, the, the, the one participant who was a burner came in the room and said, can we get this bed out of here and just put the mattress on the floor? And then we ran around to all the empty rooms in the, in the ward there and, and uh, or the, the research center and grabbed all the extra pillows and created a little nest. So we, we you know, do what we can to make the environment as conducive to a productive session as possible. And um, they're admitted the night before uh, the study. There's, you know, blood and urine tests and the usual, they, weigh, they get weighed to confirm the appropriate dosage and so on. Things you'd kind of expect. And um, we arrive in the morning, um, check in with them, talk, see what's going on, and see if there have been any recent changes. Because with, with advanced stage cancer patients, you know, with one participant um, was in a was in a pretty good place for the first session, and then got very negative news about uh, her her uh, blood results showed that her cancer was advanced. Sorry, showed that this person's cancer was advancing significantly. So they were in a very different place, and that again requiring the skills of the DJ. We kind of needed to tailor the session accordingly. Um, there's kind of a little opening grounding ritual before the, the, the substance is consumed. Um, usually there's a little period of time of just kind of chatting and whatnot. Um, when it seems like the appropriate time, fairly soon, they're encouraged but not forced to put on the eye shades and headphones. And most people have been, I was surprised when I began this study, I said, are you kidding? People are going to be comfortable tripping in a hospital with three people staring at them. I mean, we're, we're in pretty close proximity. And I was amazed at how comfortable it becomes for everybody once the session is underway. And we do try to, the extent possible, try to maintain an attentive body posture and a readiness to respond. Um, you know, you don't bring romance novels and, how you doing? You know. Um, uh, the sessions last about six hours. There's some data collected about vital signs and blood pressure and whatnot. And uh, again, some people are chatty. Some people have epiphanies. I was going to try to get through this talk without using that word, but it happens. Uh, sometimes it's a cathartic experience, and someone may burst out in tears and have a crying jag and be kind of nonverbal for an extended period of time and you just try to use your best discretion about is it appropriate to sit on the bed and maybe put an arm around a shoulder, offer a hand to hold. Sometimes I'll tell people, uh, um, you know, we'll d decide on a signal if you want your hand held. Um, but sometimes it's hard for people to ask so you just, you know, Try to respond the way you would want somebody to respond to you if you were in a similar situation. The music, we start with kind of reasonably appropriate come on music, something, you know, maybe a little more on the Enya tip, you know, if it's appropriate for that person. Some people, that's the last thing they'd ever want to hear. Some people love it. They could go the whole session with Enya. Um, 
And then as the effect of the drug is really coming on, we tend to try to play something a little more driving. When they're working, we're playing working music, usually. Um, we don't go too dark. We don't go too leading or emotional or sobby or anything like that. Um, and we do have these check-ins where we can take cues from them, you know, a, a bit, maybe a brief chat, and then, all right, you know, go back in. We'll check in a, a while later. And um, they're, they're not just released on their own. Someone needs to be there to pick them up and take them home. And then there is a series of instruments or questionnaire surveys that they begin two weeks prior. Um, they fill out little pain cards that measure the level of pain that they're having in mood. So the monitoring and the data collection aspect begins a couple of weeks in advance. There's some stuff you fill out on the day. There's a pack you fill out the next day, um, another one two weeks later. And when you're done with your second session, there are six monthly questionnaires. And I, I phone everybody once a month. How's it going? We need to check for any adverse events that have come up, just like any other drug. Um, you know, if they have bronchitis, we need to know if everybody who's in this study develops bronchitis three weeks later, you know. It's not likely to happen, but... Um, and also any other medications, any concomitant medications that you're, they're taking. We track those as well. Um, again, following the typical protocols of, you know, other studies for other drugs. Yeah. We're running out of time. Okay. Our next speaker has actually arrived. Very good. So I, I, would, I would like to thank you so much for coming all this way out into the <laughs> boondocks yeah. to help us. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you and everyone who... And thank all of you possible. for joining in here, too. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I had planned on saying more about Alicia here, uh, but if I'm going to get this program out today, I'm going to have to cut my comments a little short because my energy level is getting close to zero. But I do want to mention that uh, Alicia will be speaking at the World Psychedelic Forum in Switzerland in a couple of weeks, and I know that uh, several of our fellow saloners will also be there. Uh, and if you're one of the fortunate ones to make that conference, uh, be sure to introduce yourself to Alicia and to uh, some of the other guest lecturers we've had here in the salon who will be speaking there. And they include Alex and Allison Gray, John Hanna, Michael and Annie Mitoffer, Dale Pendel, Daniel Pinchbeck, Christian Rush, and Preet Chopra, among several others. And for those of us who can't make it to this event, I'm hoping that uh, some of our friends will record a talk or two and send it to us for use in the podcast. Now, uh, if you give it a minute's thought, every one of those psychedelic luminaries had to make the initial decision to follow this path. Just like you, uh, they had to take that first step by making a conscious decision to dedicate their lives to the further evolution of our human consciousness. And my guess is that uh, none of them had an easy time of it in the beginning, or even now for that matter. Because uh, no matter what we happen to believe, the use of these sacred medicines has been made illegal by almost every paranoid, self-perpetuating government on the planet. Not only is this path exceedingly difficult, it uh, sometimes also brings you to the attention of the authorities, whomever uh, they may be. 
which reminds me to uh, caution you about just jumping into the water and merrily following someone who you believe to be ethical uh, simply because, as I've said many times before, one of the things these medicines do is to make a person more of what they already are. Unless, of course, uh, you consciously use them to help yourself become the person you came here to be rather than the person who has resulted from their earlier conditioning of family, religion, and culture. For example, uh, if you go back and research uh, some of the events that led to the dismissal of Dr. Leary and Richard Alpert from Harvard, you'll uh, find a somewhat dark cloud hanging over a person who is now considered an elder of the psychedelic community. In fact, uh, I've even featured one of his early talks here in the salon. But in no small part, uh, due to his actions, psychedelic research uh, was ended at Harvard. Until recently, that is. If you've been keeping up with recent announcements from the world of psychedelic research lately, you probably have heard that, once again, there are several psychedelic research projects underway at that institution. But for me, and this is only my own opinion here, I wouldn't come anywhere close to those studies uh, because of their principal investigator, Dr. John Halpern. Now, I've never before said anything this negative about someone here in the salon, and so I expect you to think for yourself here and read the background information and then come to your own conclusions. The information I have can be found through links I've posted on my War on Drugs blog at my MatrixMasters.com website under the story titled, Psychedelic Researcher Turns DEA Informant. Now this is an old story that has recently come back to life because it appears that uh, this time Dr. Halpern is actually going to be called to testify in open court as contrasted with only the grand jury testimony he gave earlier. Several years ago, his information was used uh, without his personal appearance in the, in the public courts, but it resulted in the largest bust of an LSD lab in history. You might remember it because the lab was in an abandoned missile silo, and the result of the bust was to shut down the largest LSD manufacturing lab in the country, where they allegedly confiscated about 90 pounds of LSD which sounds to me like enough LSD to uh, supply the entire world for years. The biggest tragedy of that bust, outside of the fact that LSD virtually disappeared from the street, was that Dr. Halperin's good friend was given two life sentences. In other words, the friend that Dr. Halperin flew around the world with and who, according to court records, gave John $319,000 for his services in helping to launder the money, uh, well, this former friend of John's will now spend the rest of his life in a cage, while Dr. Halperin is free to conduct psychedelic research at Harvard. Until recently, the story ended there, and the people who fund Dr. Halperin's research studies thought that the opportunity to once again establish this research path at Harvard was more important than having a DEA snitch in our midst. But according to information I recently received, the DEA has now captured the childhood friend of Dr. Halpern, who allegedly did the actual money laundering. Here is a small part of what the Marin Independent Journal had to say about this story on January 8th of this year, which is uh, 2008 for those of you who will be hearing this sometime in the distant future. And I quote, Halperin, records show, 
was paid $319,000 by Picard from 1996 to 1999, the same years Wathney is charged with laundering money for Picard. Testimony at Picard's drug trial suggested that Halperin was paid for the Wathney introduction. Wathney's alleged role in the LSD ring was to take drug money, cycle it through Russia, and then send it back to Picard, partly in the form of a donation to his UCLA research program, according to testimony at Picard's trial. After the silo bust, Halperin made a deal with the feds and ratted out his friends. Now, my point in bringing up this dirty laundry is that the research studies at Harvard will be seeking volunteers. And if their research is worth a hoot, part of what they'll do will be to collect data about the participants' personal involvement with these illegal substances. And while there are several researchers I would trust with that information about me, never in a thousand lifetimes would I give that kind of information to a DEA snitch, because once they get you, they own you for life. At least that's the way I see it. Others, uh, particularly the people providing funding to John Halpern, see it differently. And so it's ultimately up to you to form your own opinions after you've read all the information that is currently available. Unfortunately, there has been no statement about this story from Dr. Halpern himself. In fact, I even have a video recording of him fleeing from a conference room rather than discuss his sordid history as a DEA informant. Well, I'm glad to have that over. I really didn't want to have to drag this dirty laundry out in public, but uh, this is a story I think you should be aware of, particularly if you are thinking about volunteering for a Harvard research study. But this is just my own opinion, and if Dr. Halperin would like to present his side of the story, I'd be more than happy to play it here in the salon. Well, I'm glad that little rant is over. Now let's uh, move on to something more positive. I've really been impressed by all of the activity on our psychedelicsalon.org blog lately. Already there are over a dozen comments on the last podcast, which was a radio interview that Dr. Leary, uh, well, he essentially just endured it. Here's a, a part of what Tree Wisdom had to say in response to a post by another saloner. You can't thank me, Lama 2, as I'm one of those that Lorenzo mentioned, the ones that weren't even alive at the time of the Leary interview. From my perspective, this interview was bizarrely surreal. I just couldn't believe the attitude of the interviewer, and I use that term loosely. He had his own agenda and ill-informed message. It was like a bad science fiction movie, and so, from the perspective of one that was not around to experience the birth of an era firsthand, I found this to be most enlightening and interesting. I suppose I had unknowingly taken the developments we've made for granted, as I haven't really known it any other way. Clearly, the effects of psychedelics have trickled down to me through other people's works. Fantasia and the Beatles' music, for example, before I was ever exposed to any entheogens, like a primer of sorts. I found this one to be very interesting. It's helped to give me a more accurate perspective of where we came from. And here's the post uh, by Lama 2 that uh, Tree Wisdom was referring to. I'm going to ramble here because Leary brought back such memories. I don't know what others think, but when I took a massive Owsley LSD dose in 1966, me and my friends were affected about the same as if Jesus, Buddha, and all the rest had been meeting us face-to-face in, say, our bathrooms and producing golden light teaching tablets or something. The moment had arisen. 
it was the end of time and more. What can you say, but the revelations were so profound, we were all transformed, and all the straight people, like our parents, sounded like these cheeseheads in this podcast. And it was so new that almost no one knew about it. You could only talk among yourselves because anyone else couldn't possibly understand. And we knew it was the changing of everything in the world. We were so united and felt so fortunate in a very emotional way to have been given such a momentous gift. It felt like celebration and revolution and the second or first coming of the suchness. And all a secret. I took off to live in the hate in San Francisco in a commune in the whole nine yards. It was perfect, and I have to admit that 40 years later now that I feel no less a thrill at what these sacred medicines have revealed and the same bliss that we are only at the beginning of even now. How lucky can a man be to be given such an enormous gift? Who can I thank here? Thanks for that comment, Lama Two. And uh, there are so many other comments, both on our salon blog and on our forum over at thegrowreport.com, that uh, it's not possible to mention them all. And so I hope you have a chance someday to surf over to one or both of these websites and see what your fellow saloners are thinking these days. And on a final note about these posts, I am very pleased to see that some of our fellow saloners are taking issue with some of my own personal positions and comments. That's the best sign I know of that you're thinking for yourself. And if enough of us stick to that track, I'm sure we're heading towards a better world. Before I go, I should let you know that uh, it may be close to the end of next week before you hear from me again. Since this uh, darn illness has been hanging on for so long now, I've uh, decided to take matters into my own hands and get some help from another source. So uh, tomorrow, I'll again be leaving the jurisdiction of these no longer United States and seek the help of a friend who is also a traditional healer. A healer with a tradition of several thousand years behind him, I might add. It's not that I don't appreciate uh, Western medicine, and I certainly do appreciate all of the hints, tips, and recommendations many of our fellow saloners have sent me in an attempt to uh, help me recover. But uh, for what now seems to be a chronic condition, I'm going to enlist the aid of a person with some real mojo. In short, I'm simply tired of not feeling very good, and so I'm going to take the bull by the tail and face the situation, so to speak. Well, I guess that's it for today, and as always, I want to close by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts, uh, although the one for this podcast today uh, might be a week or so uh, <laughs> late in getting up there. I'll do my best before I leave town, though. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.